Welcome to the season premiere of the Life and Film podcast. This is the podcast that we ask our guests from in front and behind the camera, how did they get their foot in the door? What was the key to unlocking their success? What's their story? This is a potter. Lucius Malfoy. Our guest today needs no introduction. He's one of Britain's finest actors. From taking on iconic roles such as Captain Hook and Lucius Malfoy in the beloved Harry Potter franchise. He's gone head-to-head with Mel Gibson in historical epic The Patriot, and now he's taken on the role of Hollywood icon Cary Grant. Or rather, the man behind it all, Archibald Alexander Leach. Our guest today is actor Jason Isaacs. A man could only be so many things. I was a poor father, but I was a great leader. I wasn't a great husband, but my wife was a bitch. We cannot be everything. We shouldn't try to be. Wise words, Daddy. Thank you, Jason, for taking the time, man. I know you've probably got loads of people to speak to, but I appreciate it, man. No, actually, funny enough, you are the very last interview of what's been a very long period of publicising this show. I, uh, I did a million in England and a million in America, and you are the cherry on the ice cream on the cake. Amazing. Well, I'll try and make it as painless as possible. The no, no, very last one. I feel honoured. nostalgic already about talking about it. Let's keep it going. <laughs> Milk it. You're here now. How did you start? How did your act, love of acting start? Like, what, what was the kind of impetus well, when you were... it wasn't love of acting, young? actually. And I'm not one of those people that ever wanted to do it. We went. I'm from Liverpool, a very working-class family. We just watched telly. That's all we did. We'd sit around. The whole family would sit on the couch and watch telly all night, every night. We went to the pantomime once a year. We did theatre and things. Um I went to university, we moved to London and I went to school and I, uh, I went to university and it was, I was so completely out of my social milieu. You're British, you know, I was so out of my class. There were all these people from these very public schools uh, who all dressed the same, looked the same, talked the same uh, and just had an ease in the world that I was so alien to me. And I did that thing I'd always done in my life was try and fit in with them, try and talk like them, try and fool them into thinking I was of them, which I obviously wasn't. Um, and oh, about I don't know, two weeks into university, maybe less, I was staggering around the student union building, drunk, as I always was, drunk or stoned, on, on subsidised beer, which is like nothing per pint. And there was a sign on a wall saying, audition, can you do a Northern accent? And the one thing I knew I could do authentically, because everything about me was fake at that point, was a Northern accent. I went in and auditioned for a play, and they cast me, and I just fell madly in love with... The rehearsal room because it was a place where it didn't matter where you came from i didn't need to be self-conscious about my accent or my background or my slightly vulgar northwest london origins or, or um about being jewish about you know because uh, it was a place where you were stripped away of all that stuff you were neutral supposedly and mm. trying to uh, trying to have conversations about the most important things in life who are we what are we why what makes me upset angry jealous uh, hateful um and, and act these things out. And, and in the process of acting them out in the rehearsal room, you find out a lot about yourself because you, you, you're walking in other people's shoes and thoughts and feelings. Um, so I, I did that. And that's why they did. I'm a, I'm a character also of extremes and an ex-addict and stuff. And I, I thought, well, this is good. I'm going to keep doing this. And I did play after play after play after play. I went to the Edinburgh Festival a lot and the Fringe at Christmas in London. I was, I was doing a law degree, but this was the thing I did. Oh, wow. That, that meant I didn't have to try and, chat to people at parties I had something to do and I loved yeah. doing it uh, and when it came time to leave university some of my contemporaries were applying for drama school which seemed to me the most ludicrous thing I'd ever heard of. I mean it was I did it for a hobby as a student 
but I played football as well. But and I wasn't going to, you know, write to Liverpool or Man United, see if I could have a trial. It just seemed, what were they thinking that they might go into this world of aliens who did storytelling for a living? But I think it was only like a fiver to audition or something, five pounds. And, and I'm quite competitive. And it was a day out in London. And I, so I went to audition for drama school, never thinking for a split second that I would go because I didn't know what that was. An arts professional. It seemed that seemed bonkers to me. Didn't know, you know, still didn't know anyone who took it seriously enough. And these other students I thought were just mad. Anyway, I, I auditioned and I did the second audition. And I thought if I was really lucky, I'd get a letter. I put it on the wall of my chambers as a barrister or something, or, or my grandchildren would discover it in the attic in, in, in a trunk and go, Granddad, did you get into drama school one day? That's not what happened. This this very tall woman came out of the uh, in Central. Came, her name's Jane Cowell. She was a brilliant voice coach, but she sounded like Julie Andrews. And she said, "Well, we'd very much like to offer you a place in September." And I went, "Right." I was completely sidetracked, and she went, "I hope you're not fucking us around, young man. You do know that these places are very hard <laughs> hard to come by." And I said, "No, no, no, no. I just, that will be amazing." I was just, uh, yeah, no, I was just, I can't believe it. Fantastic, and I. I so distinctly, I have a very poor memory, but I so distinctly remember walking down the street in Swiss Cottage in North London thinking, that is, I've just decided the course maybe of the rest of my life. And I don't know if it's wow. because it's what I want or because a very posh lady said fuck to me. <laughs> I, was in, I was frightened of her. Um, but it's worked out well, so. <laughs> yeah, 40 years later, I'm still not sure what I'm going to do when I grow up. <laughs> They want you to change your name. Archie Leach doesn't cut it. Anything come to mind? Cary Grant. Now, isn't that a beautiful name? Cut! The name of the father, the son, and the holy weekend box office. Cary Grant is a character. I'll be very careful about how he's perceived. This is the dreamiest guy in the world we're talking about. You're not going to break my heart, are you? Probably. <laughs> oh, I walked into that one. <laughs> Well, to go straight into it with this, I mean, what, uh, what? Are, I mean, you've played all kinds of roles for your career, from Captain Hook to like all these like iconic roles. But I feel like playing a real character like Cary Grant, that's that's got to be a lot of pressure. What was that like? Just sort of prepping yourself mentally for that. Well, you're right, but if, if I thought I was playing Cary Grant, I wouldn't have taken the job because it was just it, that's too ridiculous. So only when I looked into it, I saw it was called Archie. So it was written by Jeff Pope, who's got this long history of making this great real-life events into drama. Um, but they said to me it was Cary Grant biopic, and I thought, well, what kind of fucking idiot would, would take that on? Because it's just professional suicide. So I read the scripts, and I went, oh, there was no Cary Grant. Cary Grant was an invention. Archie Leach created this character who was the antithesis of himself. He was... You know, it was everything that, that Archie wanted to be and hoped that he might be and fooled most of the world in thinking that he was. And when he got home and shut the door, got upset, in his personal relationships, it, the mask dropped and he was the very opposite, the polar opposite of all those qualities that we've come to associate with Cary Grant, uh, the character. Um, and so I thought, OK, well, that gives me some license. That That at least feels vaguely playable because you'd have to be just out of your mind to to say to an audience look at me i'm cary grant but look at me i'm the guy who goes home and is tortured and has never got over the scars of this terrible childhood and can't hold down a relationship and is so emotionally volcanic that he weeps for months at a time or drinks for months at a time and and uh and destroys everything that he loves 
that felt like something that was playable. And so I could try and forget the fact that it comes with, yeah, a mountain of other people's expectations, but you just have to shrug those off and jump in. Mm. Well, you mentioned that it's almost, it's almost like two characters because he really, I, I learned so much from this, this show, because I had no idea of that. You know, everyone's got Me the neither. images. I didn't know anything about it. Oh, right, most people don't. Unless you've read the biographies and really delved into it, most people think, oh, carry on, I love him. And they start bandying around these phrases or these adjectives that are mm. about the person he played in films, but they're nothing to do with the man he was in his life. Mm. I was Sorry, just... I interrupted. Cool. No, no, no. I was, I was going to say that, you know, the whole story about his upbringing, his father, the relationship he had with his mother as well, all of that stuff. Just when I was watching it, it feels like fiction. I was like having to look it up after I watched it. I was like, I can't believe all of this is true. It was brutal. And, you know, something the camera can't really convey. And because you don't have time, it's just, you know, because we quickly at various points fill in his backstory. But mostly it's the time spent with Diane in the 60s. Um mm. It was not only incredibly violent, his background, his father was alcoholic and violent, his grandmother was alcoholic and violent, but he was starved. I don't mean he was starved of love, that's true, nobody loved him. He was absolutely thrown on the scrap heap and abandoned. I mean, he was hungry, he was literally hungry all the time, looking for scraps of food. That and the emotional scars never left him, so he'd not only finished everything on his plate, he'd finished everything on everyone else's plate too, always. And if mm. he couldn't, which he could mostly, because it's not related to hunger, He'd pack it all up and take it home. And he had parties. I mean, he had breakfast with lots of people. Save all. Make sandwiches at lunch. Like, he couldn't bear waste, which is why he got a reputation for being mean with money. He just, every penny counted because he remembered the times when he was cutting coupons out to try and get enough food to survive. This podcast is sponsored by BetterHelp. Do you work in the film industry? Are you freelance? Or perhaps you have a nine-to-five? No matter what you do, mental health affects us all. I struggled early on in my career with the uncertainty of if and when I would ever work again, struggling to pay my bills or simply with anxiety. Don't know about you, but being an actor, it's very important for me to maintain structure in the downtimes. And I found not only exercise, but talking to someone for me was a game changer. And so Life in Film has partnered with BetterHelp to provide you with access to the largest online therapy service in the world. And it can all be done from the comfort of your own home, from a phone, tablet or laptop. No commute, cutting down travel costs, and most importantly, it's affordable. With over a thousand therapists in the UK, BetterHelp can provide access to mental health professionals with a wide variety of expertise in mental health. If you need someone to talk to and you're thinking of giving therapy a go, BetterHelp is a great option. And being a listener of the podcast, you get 10% off. That's 10% off your first month at betterhelp.com forward slash life and film. That's betterhelp.com forward slash life and film and back to the show it's such a crazy thing that uh, again this is me just being ignorant because I, I i think of carrie grant as you know north by northwest these massive hollywood movies well no, you think really... of, but that's like we think of who bruce willis was in the films or who stallone is in the film like do we have, know anything about who they are when they shut the front door Matches. and get home inside their marriages you know yeah well it's a, a very it, it's that this is what i loved about the show though it's it's a pretty heavy subject matter and the character he's He's a pretty heavy guy, but it's done with a light of touch that sure. makes That's it the watchable and entertaining. Yeah, That's the director. He, he Shooting everything on Super 8 was rather brilliant, so that uh, the whole thing is maybe a memory, because we use mm. Super 8 for kind of cine film uh, flashbacks. Also, towards the end of his life, after decades of not uh, performing and being a businessman, he did that thing, filling in for a friend at first, and he liked it, where he went on stage with a mic and just mm. told stories or answered questions. He liked cheap laughs. He, he liked being reminded that anyone remembered who he was because he thought his mm. films were irrelevant and long gone. 
but he had a stroke during one of them. It meant that the filmmakers, the, the writer Jeff Pope and the director Paul Andrew Williams, had license for this not to be a kind of chronological biopic, this, then, this, then, this, but to be maybe the maybe that didn't happen the night we see him on stage. Maybe the whole thing is the fever dream of a man who's dying of a stroke. And so images come back and moments come back so it can stay light or it can it can flit around timelines and it can keep you on your toes because you're right, he was depressed a lot of the time. Mm. And he was uh, the gap between this wonderful creature he created that the world lusted after and what he actually felt like at home uh, and the fear he felt and anxiety he felt and the need to control his new wife, the bit we concentrated on, the fourth marriage, uh, could be very heavy. But but somehow, because of the period, because of the clothes, and because of Paul as a great director and his choice of music and the way he cuts it, that you feel like it's it's kind of a romp through this heavy period. Mm. And I have to say, I admire um, a lot of the clothes that you were wearing in this. They felt like, I, it's just the period's great anyway, but like everything you were wearing looked legit. It looked like the real deal. It looked very... Um, yeah, just it you know why? Looked... The reason is that... because everything I'm wearing was tailor made by the world's greatest tailors in Savile Row. Oh. And so all of them were made, you know, I have multiple fittings. They put it on, they put the basic thing on and go, geez, he looks a bit, and then they go, his shoulders a bit dropped. You know, they, they basically made it around my my various humps and wow. twisted bits of body and one leg short and the other, whatever. And they make so many adjustments that you end up looking really fabulous and balanced and, you know, athletic. I and mean, when I mean, underneath is, Quasimodo bursting to get out. <laughs> well, you look you look very suave indeed. Oh, I did. That's the amazing costume department, amazing hair and makeup department who do different looks yeah, at different incredible. ages. And, you know, I don't look anything like myself. It's mad because I when when I saw first saw the pictures of you with the makeup on and in the full thing, I was like, I had to really like kind of get my head around it. I was like, oh, it's only a few little things, but it really changes yeah, yeah. your I mean, face. I don't look like him. So the, those, you know, remarkable wits online who go, you know, Cary Grant, I know. I'm no, but I think, you do, I think you do, I though. Don't, I don't really look like him. What I don't do is look like me. I look a little bit. You make some nods towards him. If you're going to watch this, if people watch it, go, let's see how exactly like Cary Grant he is. Go and watch a Cary Grant film. This yeah. is a story yeah. about Archie Leach, the man he was when he got offset. And of course, I'm not exactly him. Unfortunately, because of AI, in a couple of years' time, you'll have Cary Grant in the film playing this. And, and you won't have actors anymore. But right now, I'm an actor. And so, you know, you're engaging in a creative enterprise with those of us telling the story. Mm-hmm. But they still do a remarkable job. I'd, I mean, I'd look in the mirror and went, who the fuck is that looking back? <laughs> you were very tanned. Very tanned. Great oh, tanned. He was, yeah. he was outdoor furniture man from the first second he arrived in Hollywood. Look, he was very impressionable. He was very insecure. He'd do anything mm-hmm. anyone told him. And he really admired a couple of the older actors who gave him tips and he stuck them the rest of his life. And one person said to him be brown gave him the color of the makeup be brown and he got a tan and he spent the rest of his life with those triple reflectors he'd sit outside his office and stuff uh, and people his friends begged him to stop he said look it's too, you've gone much too far you look ridiculous and <laughs> the people dps on film sets that overlight him and underlight other people to try and balance it out because he was in gunga din and he, he was browner than the indians oh, he was very very brown but he was a man of tremendous extremes and obsessive behavior in every area yeah, yeah. In terms of like the homework for this, did you do a lot of reading and because well, it's not I that knew many. Nothing about him. I couldn't find I... that many interviews with actually going on. Very good. No, you get ahead of me. No, he he. Uh, first of all, I knew nothing about him, so I I watched the films, but the films are useless. Because we're telling a story about the guy that wasn't that. Um, mm-hmm. I read all the biographies, which are fantastic and brilliantly researched. They all have a wealth of stories about him. I read all the biographies and autobiographies that mention him in someone else's life story. Um, 
I read Jennifer's, his daughter's uh, autobiography, which remembers a doting, loving father who hadn't been an actor for a while. So that's not that much use, but interesting. It's nice to know. Then I read Diane Cannon's book. And Diane Cannon's book was an absolute revelation. It's the reason Jeff wrote this in the first place. Um, and she chronicles tremendously generously, considering how appalling the marriage was and, and how much she tried to control her and what the fallout was for her, which is ending up in a psychiatric institution. She chronicles not only the abuse and control and uh, suffocation of her inside the marriage, but also really um, details the fault line stretching all the way back to his childhood. And, and, and she knew where his appalling behavior came from. So that was very useful. Um, but, you know, I didn't know I didn't know about him. and I didn't know what he felt like and what it felt like to be him. And I didn't know. Uh, and I, I, I found it hard to process because I couldn't find an interview. As you said, there were no interviews. I wanted to find out what he spoke like. He didn't talk like he did in the films, any more than he acted like he did in the films. Uh, I don't mean he had a completely different voice. Mm. I just mean in the films, when I broke down his speech patterns, he said every line in almost exactly the same way. Exactly the same certainty. <laughs> I look, you know, I look vaguely familiar. Yeah. You think you've seen me somewhere before. Like, that's very curated. Mm. He didn't talk mm. like that. No one talks like that if they spill their coffee in their lap in the morning, you know, or if they're having a blazing row with their wife. And eventually... I tracked down an illicit interview, just one, because he didn't do talks, he didn't, didn't do podcasts, but he didn't do any chat shows, he didn't do any of that stuff. Because he knew that behind the, when the mask dropped, he was someone very different. He didn't want the public to see it. Anyway, he gave one interview with someone in the last year of his life that was recorded against his will, and I got access to it. And for the first uh -huh. time, I heard him. I heard his insecurities. I heard his, I heard the boy in some ways. I heard his belligerence. I heard his indifference to the audience. You know, he felt like he owed them nothing. They owed him nothing. I heard his, the things that frustrated him. I heard all those colors that he hid from the public. And I could, mm. thought I could hear echoes of the person I needed to play in the show. And that was, a, that was an invaluable piece of research for me. Mm. What a gift. What a, like a real, yeah. like, what a without that, I don't know what I would have done. Because uh, I really, I knew he couldn't possibly talk like he did in the films, but it was so, in this interview, he says, the, the kid, he was on a student, asked him, Who, who's the best actress you work with? And he's, without a blink, he goes, Grace Kelly. Grace Kelly, because she was relaxed. He goes, and, and that's yeah. the hardest thing to do. Well, actually, Grace Kelly wasn't that much of an actress, certainly not compared to Ingrid Bergman, who he worked with multiple times, and Catherine Hepburn, mm -hmm. and Deborah Carr, and all these other people. But why did he pick Grace Kelly out? Because to be relaxed on screen was something mm -hmm. he aspired to greatly, because he couldn't do it. So I knew yeah. that what I was watching was something he worked hard to create and that in life there was something very different going on. So the tape was really helpful. I'll never let you go, Archie. You know what's wrong with you? No, why? Nothing. Dad, when am I going to see Mother again? I'll be right back, I promise. No, please, I want to go home! So it's okay to have a silly child like me in real life, but in La La Land, it makes you look ridiculous? You're Cary Grant. Not to you, Mom. Just Archie. Anybody who ever cared about me could never do that to me. Shut up! My daughter, Jennifer, she is by far my best production. What a journey we've been on. Now, I know exactly who I am. Jason, this has been wicked. Thank you so much for taking the time and all the very best, man. Thank you. Love you. Thank you. Bye. Bye. Here's the life and film, motherfucker. Subscribe and like and follow. Thank you to our guest, Jason, 
and thank you to 42 West. And as always, thank you to our sponsor, BetterHelp.